Good morning. Um, just want to this chapter for three or four weeks. Um, most of the time we read in scripture about Jesus goes into, you know, up to the mountains in a quiet time of prayer with the Father. But in this chapter here, we see that Jesus is praying aloud. And I believe he's praying aloud to encourage us. Oh, sorry. Start that over again. How about now? All right. And the, the glasses are defogging as we speak. So uh, again, I just wanted to say that um, after looking at this passage for a few weeks and uh, Noticing how a lot of times in Scripture, Jesus goes and prays with a quiet time with the Father, and, you know, whether he's going into the mountains or... But here in this chapter, John 17, we hear Jesus pray aloud. And I believe the reason and the purpose for that is to encourage us, to encourage the disciples, to encourage those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are following Jesus with their lives, that we would be encouraged to the hope that we have in the redemption of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The encouragement we have in the gospel. So I, I, with that in mind, and another observation as looking at this for the last few weeks, the love that the Father had for the Son, and the Son for the Father, and the love that God has for us, and this beautiful, glorious work of redemption at the cross for us, gave me such a special feeling as being a child of God, that God would love me so much, that all these things would take place to secure me, to purchase me with his shed blood on the cross. This is powerful. Uh, and I was affected by this chapter. So let me begin the sermon. Good morning. I, wanna con I want you to consider the Bible has uh, one great message, one great theme. Now my question this morning is this. Where do we go to find a clear expression of that message or that theme? Well, if you want to discover the central message of the Bible, we must come to the Bible itself. But where? There are 66 books. Where do we begin to find that concise message, that express theme? Obviously, we come to the most strategic time in all the Bible, the defining moment of all the history. We come to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looked forward to that point in time, and the New Testament looks back to explain that reality so clearly. It is the center point of Scripture. But we have four inspired records of Jesus' life and ministry. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where do we look for the, in those books to find this one great message? 
where is the purpose and plan of God exactly expressed? Well, you might expect it comes from the mouth of our Lord himself. The great eternal plan of God, the great message of the Bible is laid out for us in our Lord's longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. It is, it's the prayer that he prayed just a couple of hours before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just nine short hours before his crucifixion. This long prayer, the longest of his recorded prayers, shows us the mind of Christ himself. It shows us the mind of God. It brings us to the center of God's great eternal plan. And it is recorded for us right here in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It is the Lord's Prayer. We talk about Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We talk about that as the Lord's Prayer. But that was the disciples' prayer. That was our instruction on how to pray from our Lord. But here in John 17, we hear the Lord's prayer. It's his high priestly prayer for his own. And it unfolds in three movements. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays, for the remaining 11 apostles. Judas has now left and is about to bring a crowd of soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane in his betrayal. And so Jesus prays for the 11, 11 remaining. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus looks down through time, knowing all of those who would come to believe in him, and he prays for all believers of all time. What does Jesus pray for you? What, what does he pray for me? The answer is here in John 17. In this passage, we get a glimpse into what is happening right now in the presence of God on our behalf. My hope this morning is by the time we're done, you'll see that the details here in this passage, our Lord's words, support the reality of this theme and one central message. From Jesus' prayer, we discover that the great theme of the Bible, the one great message of Scripture is this. God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to his own glory. Let me say that again. God is redeeming a people by his son, for his son, to his own glory. Now each of these words were ca uh, chosen carefully. And each of them is absolutely essential into understanding the Bible's great theme, the one great message, as it unfolds here in this magnificent prayer of our Lord. So let's look then at the evidence together and work our way through word by word this one great message of the Bible. God is redeeming a people by his son, for his son, 
for his own glory. Let's begin, as we must, with the word God. God is the subject in the sentence, summarizing the great theme of the Bible because it is God who initiated this plan. Jesus understood, even in this prayer, that he was here on this earth on a mission from God, sent by God on a mission the Father had initiated. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished or by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Now, I want you to look first at verse 5 because Jesus makes two bold claims here. First, he claims that he existed before he came into the world. He existed before he entered the womb of the Virgin Mary. In fact, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, I existed before there was anything but God. The scriptures say, the glory I had with you, Father, before the world was. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is claiming that before there was anything that's around us. When there was nothing but God, he existed. But he also makes another bold claim in verse 5. Not only that he existed before he came into the world, before the world was created, but he also enjoyed equal status with God himself. Notice what he says. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus existed before the world existed, and he enjoyed equal glory with God himself. This is a powerful statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. However, Jesus left that glory that he enjoyed with the Father, obviously, as he is praying this prayer after living 33 years on this earth. He's praying this prayer from a garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem. So he left that glory, became flesh, and came into the world on a mission. And that brings us back to verse 4. He came into the world to do the work which the Father had assigned him and for which he gladly committed himself to. You see, on that Thursday night, as Jesus anticipated the cross within just a few short hours, he was able to say, I have accomplished the work you have given me to do. He could see the end in sight. Of course, it wasn't officially done until 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, less than 24 hours from this prayer, when Jesus would cry out with a loud voice, what? It is finished. It is finished. But notice in verse 4, Considering the mission being accomplished, Jesus here asked the Father to be restored to the glory that he had known before. It was a prayer to return to the glory of heaven, 
a prayer to return to the Father's presence. But don't miss the point of verses 4 and 5. Jesus is acknowledging that God had initiated a great plan, an eternal plan of redemption, and that he was here on assignment to accomplish that plan. The same idea permeates this prayer of Jesus. Look at verse 8. You sent me. Verse 18. You sent me into the world. Verse 21. You sent me. Verse 23. You sent me. Verse 25. You sent me. And as we pause here on holy ground, Jesus gives us a glimpse into this prayer. Back into eternity past back into the eternal counsels of the triune God as they create an incredible, inconceivable, irrevocable plan. Jesus is here clearly alluding to the fact that in the eternal counsel of the Trinity, several amazing decisions were made. God decided to create man. He decided to create man with the capacity of choice or will. Now God's not responsible for man's choice, but he did determine to create man, and he determined to allow man to exercise that will and to fall into sin. And then God, in his great mercy and his love, determined to rescue some of those sinners from their sin. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, on a search and rescue mission to accomplish this great rescue plan. The point is, man's redemption was not some kind of afterthought. The great theme of the Bible is that God has always had a plan to rescue sinners from his own justice, redeeming us from our sin. In eternity past, God graciously created this plan. In human history, through Jesus Christ, he executed this plan. And in the future, he will bring this plan to completion. Praise God. That's why Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, He who began a good work in you, that's God. God began the work in you. In Philippians 2, verse 13, God is continuing that work. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he says back in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, the God who is continuing that work, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is the God who will bring this work to completion. So the first word of the Bible's great theme must be God, because it was God who initiated this plan. That brings us to our next two words. God is redeeming. God is redeeming. This is what God intended for his eternal plan to accomplish. God is redeeming, or we could use the word rescuing. This is a very common concept in Scripture. That's why God refers to himself as what? A savior. He's a rescuer. 
when we read in Scripture about someone being saved, the word saved means rescued or received salvation. Now, what does that imply? Imagine if this morning, as you sit here, someone walked into the sanctuary, came up to you and grabbed you by the shoulders and said, I'm here to rescue you. What would you say? Why? From, from what? I don't feel any sense of danger here. You see, behind the concept of our spiritual rescue, which Jesus was sent to accomplish, is a very sobering and concerning reality. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. And listen, this is crucial. It doesn't matter whether or not you sit here this morning, you feel like you need to be rescued. That's, that doesn't matter. The real issue is, are you in danger or are you not in danger? Again, imagine that person who comes in and grabs you by the shoulders and says, I'm here to rescue you. If you say to them, go away, <laughs> I don't need to be rescued, I'm fine. And by the way, when you share the gospel with most people, that's the response you get. What's going to be the first task before they can be rescued? They must be convinced that they're in danger. That's what most of the Bible is written to do. It shows us that we are in an imminent danger, not physical danger, but spiritual, eternal danger. You see, God is so gracious and so merciful and so loving that he warns us again and again and again, we're in danger. We need to read those sections of scripture that are filled with doom and gloom and judgment and destruction. Don't skip them. It's God's grace saying to you, you're in danger. Whether you feel like it or not. As we read the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis will tell you that God made the world and everything in it. And at the end of chapter 1, he says, God looked at all that he made. And he said, it is very good. That all changes in chapter 3. Something tragic happened. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God in the one straightforward command he gave them. Don't eat of the tree. They acted in our place. They did exactly what you and I would have done. Because it's what we do day in and day out. We make choices. Knowing what God wants. And at times, no matter how hard we try at times, we disobey. So what happened? They brought physical and spiritual death into the world. They severed their relationship with God. They were banished from the garden and their sins brought God's judgment against all of humanity. The entire Bible echoes with those same themes. God reveals his will through his word and man, knowing God's will, chooses to disobey. 
And God, because he's just, must punish sin. The same pattern is true for you and for me. God has revealed his will to us. We know that, right? How many times has our conscience said, don't do that? Then we choose to do it anyway. We knew and we still rebelled just like Adam and Eve. We also have his word. We're sitting here this morning and we have the Bible. We know what God wants and yet all of us at times make these choices. We've chosen to disobey God at times and to do things our own way. By God's grace, he teaches us through those things and he draws us closest, closer to, our, to himself if we're a child of God. And therefore, God throughout the Bible warns us that our willful choices to disregard him, disregard his law, is stirring up justice. It's who he is. God must be just. And so he writes the Bible with these powerful tones of warning and warning and warning and saying, it's coming, you're in danger, please listen to the warning, please receive the gospel. The Bible's filled with bad news. Hebrews 9.27, it is an appointed, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Romans 2 verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are stirring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible is also filled with good news because God goes on to not only warn us of the danger wherein, but to show us that he himself is a gracious God and finds joy and delight in rescuing us from the curse of sin we inherited from Adam and the mess we have made with our lives by rescuing us from our sin, from the judgment our sins deserve, and pro by providing for our spiritual rescue the sacrifice of his own beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The gospel is the good news. As we hear of the penalty of our sin, what our sins deserve, and that none of us are sinless. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's not one of us. And yet Jesus put aside his glory. He took on flesh. He came to this earth. He lived a life that you and me could never do on our best day. He shed his blood and he died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. He loved us so much. He loved us so much that he gave his life for us. He took our sin on the cross. He bore the guilt and the shame and everything in our lives that we're not happy about. He took upon himself on that cross. That's the kind of love that God had for us. 
and he gave his life. And he did that for us. He did that because he loves us. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, the hope we have in the cross, the confidence we can have to stand before God knowing that Jesus Christ paid for our sin in full. And we can have that. We can have that today if we repent of our sins and believe on Jesus Christ and accept him as our Lord and our Savior. Now in John 17, Jesus' rescue of us is captured in three biblical concepts. Let me give them to you briefly. Number one, the rescue consists of salvation. That is, rescue from the penalty of our sin. Jesus spoke of these things in John 17 after the upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 16. In John 17, verse 1, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Notice these two words, very important. The hour. We discover back in a few couple uh, verses in John chapter 13, the hour in John 13 is connected to his death, burial, and resurrection. It's connected to his resurrection and ascension. Notice in verse 2, he connects the hour with providing eternal life. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Why? Because of this hour that's approaching. Verse 2, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, listen to this, he may give them eternal life. You see, Jesus in that hour of his death makes eternal life possible for us. That's his point. Eternal life is crucial. And according to the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, if you don't have eternal life, you're perishing. It's not optional. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What is eternal life? Most people, when they think of eternal life, they think of a duration of life. Uh, they think of a, qua a quantity of life. And of course, that is included. But listen, every single person here this morning, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, will live somewhere forever. So that's not all there is to eternal life. There's more. He defines it in verse 3. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life. He's giving us the definition. This is eternal life. That we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is not about a quantity of life primarily, but it's about a quality of life. 
in which you can know God, your creator. You can have that relationship that was broken in the fall by sin and rebellion to God, restored through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the focus of Jesus' life, his human history, his redemptive history, was on that hour that Jesus mentions in verse 1. That is the event surrounding his death and resurrection. It was that hour in which he accomplished our spiritual rescue by overcoming spiritual death and giving us eternal life and by enabling us to truly know God our creator and by absorbing the wrath of God which our sins deserve. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. So Jesus' death and accomplished our spiritual rescue. But this invites an important question. Obviously, not everyone is going to be rescued. The Bible makes this clear. There are going to be people that God will judge in a place Jesus called hell. But how do some benefit from the death of Christ while others don't? And this is why we can't share the gospel enough. Well, the answer is right here in this prayer. It's how you respond to Jesus' message. Notice how his true disciples respond to his word. Look at verse 7. Now they came to know that everything you gave me is from you. What he is talking about. What is he talking about here? Look at verse 8. He's talking about the words which the Father gave him. So the first way the disciples responded to Jesus' message is they accepted Jesus' message as the very words of God himself. But he goes on in verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Now notice the second response of true disciples to uh, True disciples to Jesus' word. The middle of verse 8. Look at the middle of verse 8. And they received them and truly understand, understood that I came forth from you. In other words, they embraced the truth about who Jesus really was. He was sent by God as God, God in human flesh. They believed that. They embraced that. And notice the third way they responded to Jesus' word. The end of verse 8. And they believed that you sent me. In other words, they believed in Jesus' mission as he explained it to them. That he came as a ransom for sinners. That he was dying in the place of sinners. They understood that. They accepted that. They believed in Jesus' words. But believing is more than just accepting facts. Look at the other way Jesus describes their faith in this passage. Go back to verse 6. I have manifested your name, meaning I have revealed who you are to the people. You gave me out of the world. And notice the end of verse 6. And they have kept your word. 
Here is the great proof of genuine faith in Jesus' message. Do you believe him enough to obey him? If not, what you have isn't true saving faith. True saving faith believes him enough to keep his word. So Jesus rescues us from the penalty of sin. That's the first aspect of his rescue. It's salvation. Secondly is sanctification. He rescues us from the power of sin. Look at verses 14 through 17. I have given them your word, and the, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now the key word in this section is the word sanctify, which means set apart. Well, you may say set apart from what? Well, first of all, it means set us apart from the world's system. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's not saying we're not people like the people around us. He's saying we're not connected to the world's system. Now, I was going to read from a commentary of a, of a good Bible teacher and give you this explanation of the world and the world system, but I've chosen to go directly to the words of our Lord here in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Let me read this. It will give you this description of the world and the world system. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and all its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I think that was the best description I could have came up with uh, for the world system. Keep our eyes on Christ. He also has set us apart from Satan in this chapter. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, meaning Satan. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, before we are converted... Before we are rescued or saved, before believing in Jesus Christ as a Savior, we lived in darkness and do the works of our father, the devil. And now he says, I want you, Father, to separate them from their old father who means them harm. He also set us apart from the power of individual sins in our lives. Notice verse 17. Sanctify them. 
This is talking about being made progressively holy, being more made more in the image of Jesus Christ. The primary instrument God uses to make us more like Christ is his word. Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer here makes it clear that the way we are made more like him is through an increasing knowledge of, meditation on, and application of the truth of his word in our lives. So don't expect as a Christian that you're going to overcome patterns of sin in your life if you are holding this book at a distance. Jesus isn't praying for you to be sanctified by any other way. He's praying for you to be sanctified through the truth of his word. God speaks to us. He instructs us. He corrects us. He disciplines us. He makes us more like Christ through the reading of his word. If this word is not part of your life, if you're not engaging in the scriptures daily, you're not in communication with God. You're not receiving truth and receiving instruction and correction and discipline from the person who loves you more than anybody else. The one who went to the cross and died for you. This Bible is essential for us who follow Jesus Christ. We cannot be a Christian apart from it. Oh, sorry about that. God rescues us in salvation from the penalty of sin, in sanctification from the power of sin, and in glorification, he rescues us from the presence of sin. Look at verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundations of the world. You know what Jesus is praying? Let them join us in heaven, Father. Now what, how does that happen? Unless we are made like Christ, which is called glorification, that can't happen. Every word in our statement of the Bible's theme and central message is important. Notice what I said. God is redeeming, right? That's a continual prog uh, progress. That's happening daily in our lives. We were rescued from the penalty of sin the moment we believed and repented. We are being rescued from the power of individual sins through the Spirit and the scriptures in our lives day by day. And we will be rescued in the future from the presence of sin and from the, even the possibility of sin. Now there's a third part of the Bible's great theme and central message, and it's that God is redeeming a people. A people. God's plan was to save a specific people. This begins to unfold right after the fall of man in Genesis 3. It begins with Adam and Eve. 
where the second person of the Trinity provides an animal. And he cloths them with the skin of the animal to picture the sacrifice that he would make one day in the future, pointing to the cross. And then in chapter 4, it's Seth and his lineage. Then beginning in chapter 5 and following, we meet Noah and his sons. And in terms of his sons, God specifically in Genesis 11 chooses Shem. And then from Shem eventually comes a man named Abraham in Genesis 12. And then he chooses not Ishmael, the son of Abraham, but Isaac. And then he chooses not Esau, but Jacob, whom he eventually renamed Israel. And as you walk through the Old Testament, again and again you see God drawing a people to himself. In the Old Testament, we, all, we also are reminded that God wasn't just saving the Jews. He also was saving Gentiles. Gentiles like Ruth and Rahab, both who end up in the lineage of Christ. We see the Assyrians in Nivea who responded to the preaching of Jonah. This same message resounds in the New Testament. I love the way James puts it in the book of Acts, chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council. James, Jesus' half-brother, says this in verses 14 through 17. Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. This is what God is about. He's about taking a people for his name. Verse 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild the ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So in that dark night before the crucifixion, it's not surprising to hear Jesus using this same kind of language. Go back to John 17 and look at the end of verse 1. Jesus is talking about himself as the Son of God here. I want, you to, gl I want to glorify you Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give them eternal life. This is a monumental statement in verse 2. The Father gave the Son authority to grant eternal life. To whom? To all whom you have given him. This concept was extremely important to Jesus. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to them who you gave me out of the world. And then he makes a remarkable statement. He says, they were yours. You see, what Jesus is saying is, before the apostles were redeemed, they were God's. They belonged to God. Why? Why? Because he had set his love on them. He had chosen them. 
That's why in the book of Acts, Jesus appears to Paul and says this, I want you to stay in the city and I want you to preach the gospel because I have many people in this city. People had not yet been redeemed, but they were God's. Jesus said in verse 6, they were yours and you gave them to me and they kept your word. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I pray on behalf of my disciples. I don't pray on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me. For they were yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And in the final section of this prayer, Jesus uses the same language. Take a look down at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these 11 alone, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. Now notice how Jesus describes all of us in verse 24. Look down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, same expression, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me. We have been given by the Father to the Son. Makes me feel awful special. The Bible makes it clear that God's plan of redemption included those on whom he set his love those whom he chose in eternity past. They were his, and then he gave them to his son Jesus and for him to ensure that he would accomplish their rescue, my rescue. This is what is called sovereign grace. This is what the Bible teaches. In fact, I, it can be said that can't be said any more clearer than Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, God is redeeming a people on whom he has set his eternal love. This is incredible love that God has for us. Now, maybe you're tempted to ask this morning, well, that complicates things for me, Steve, because how do I know if God chose me? I want to tell you, that's easy. It's easy. Are you willing to turn from your sin today and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the question. That's the answer to the question, did God choose me? Are you willing to turn from your sin like I did the day that I repented and turned to Christ and like most of us here? Are you willing to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ and trust him as Lord and Savior? Are you willing today to surrender your life and your will and to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Here's how Jesus puts it in John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
The fact that you are willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ makes it clear that he has already chosen you before the foundations of the world. He set his love on you and he sent his son to come to this earth, pay the price for your sin so that you could spend eternity with him. So God is redeeming a people. The other ones go quick now, okay? <laughs> I want you to get nervous. The fourth part of the Bible's theme is God is redeeming a people by his son. This is the message of all scripture. Throughout his three and a half year ministry, Jesus often said, my hour or the hour has not come. We read that a lot as we should. The hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. But in John 12, verse 23, on that Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. So let's look back at John 17, 1. It's about midnight on that night, Thursday night, about nine hours from the crucifixion, and Jesus, lifting his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. By the hour, Jesus meant his death, his resurrection, the work of redemption. The son in that hour of his death and resurrection accomplished God's great plan of redemption. He could only accomplish our spiritual rescue by dying in our place on that cross. This is how he explained it in Mark 10, 45. He told his disciples, I didn't come in order to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I came to die as a substitute for all who will believe in me. So at the cross, God is redeeming a people by his son, by his death in our place, by absorbing the wrath and justice of God that our sins deserve. The fifth part of the Bible's theme is that God is redeeming a people by his son. Now notice the difference, for his son. You see, God's plan of redemption was designed for Jesus Christ, his son. Obviously, there are eternal blessings and benefits for all of us. But in the ultimate sense, the plan of redemption is not about us. It's about Christ. And this becomes very clear in John 17. I want you to see how Jesus puts it again and again. Look at verse 2. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that all you have given him, notice, given him, given to Jesus, he may give them eternal life. We see this in verse 6, all whom you gave me. Verse 9, those whom you have given me. Go to verse 24, those whom you have given me. Do you understand the enormity of what Jesus is saying to the Father? He was saying that the people that he was dying to rescue were his Father's love gift to him. God the Father intends as an expression of his eternal love for his Son, this is very important, to present to him a redeemed people 
for whoever will love him and adore him and praise him and reflect his glory for all eternity. And that starts the day we say, Lord, would you save me? Now, our last part of the Bible's central message underscores the supreme purpose of God. God is redeeming a people by his son, for his son, to his own glory. The glory of the Father is the ultimate purpose behind the eternal plan of redemption. You see that throughout this passage. John 17.1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour, the hour of my death and resurrection has come. Glorify your Son. But notice the order. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus' goal in all of this was not his ultimate glory, but the glory of the Father. He only wanted to be glorified in his death and resurrection so that the Father would be glorified. I don't have time to walk through this, but I want you to see three clear things in Ephesians 1. Real quick, and then I'm going to be concluding. In Ephesians 1, from verses 4 down to 13, three times Paul says the reason for salvation is, he says, to the praise of his glory. He says again, to the praise of his glorious grace. He says again, to the praise of his glory. But what's interesting about those three expressions is that they all come at the end of a paragraph. And each paragraph is a separate point is being made by our Lord. Paul says in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 1, it was for the glory of God, listen to this, that the Father chose you. In verses 7 down through 12, it says, It's for the Father's glory that the Son redeemed you. And now in verses 13 and 14, It was for the glory of God that the Spirit sealed and secured you. He did it all for his own glory. So there's the central message of the Bible. God is redeeming a people by his son, for his son, to his own glory. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, his words are pushing down on your shoulders this morning in the pew. And he's telling you that you're in danger and you need to be rescued. If you're in Christ this morning, and you know Jesus as your Savior, and His Spirit lives in you, this prayer was prayed out loud to encourage us. Encourage us on how much God loves us. How much Jesus was willing to sacrificially die for us and purchase us on the cross. And we as brothers and sisters gather together to praise Him and to bring glory to Him. And as we live each day of our lives, We need to be connected to his word. We need to continue to have fellowship with Christ through his word as he teaches us how to live 
How? To the glory of God the Father. It's the mission on which he came to make salvation possible. If you believe his message, if you will keep his word, if you'll turn to him as Lord, if you'll accept his offer of grace, he will save you from your sin by his son, for his son, and for his own glory.